Amen. So if you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. It's where we're at in our study through the book of Acts. And we pick up in verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or house sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yeah, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband at are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Well, as you know, I'm, it's not a newsflash to anybody, but we finished our study in the Gospel of Matthew. It took about two and a half years. And, you know, you might have felt that that was a little bit too long for a study in a single book. But, you know, my heart is never to gloss over anything. You know, I just want to hear everything that the Lord has for us. Even at that pace, two and a half years for the Gospel of Matthew, even at that pace, there's still so much more for us in the back in that book. We could go back and take another two years and, and be in it and still not exhaust all the wonderful instruction that the Lord has for us in that gospel. But instead of going back, we've continued our systematic study of the word by, uh, you know, continuing our verse-by-verse -verse study going on now into the book of Acts. And you may recall, as we started this book, 
the book of Acts, we noted that the common title of the book was the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we made mention at that time uh, that probably the more accurate title of the book should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit in and through the followers of Jesus Christ. And we also noted that one of the great revelations, one of the great lessons of this book, this book of Acts, is that God wants to do great things, amazing things, unthinkable things, in and through the lives of ordinary people like you and I. That's God's heart. And that's something that we must never, we must never lose sight of it. We must never forget that. We must never allow ourselves to let that understanding fade from our minds, right? God wants to use you and I to accomplish extraordinary things in his name. And just by a way of quick review, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book. Uh, Acts chapter one, we saw, you know, the promise that Jesus gave to the disciples, you know, that they would receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We saw that happen. And when the Holy Spirit uh, came upon them, Jesus promised that they would receive power and be a witness uh, to him in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in chapter one, again, we saw that outpouring of the Holy... Uh, actually, we saw the promise. We saw the ascension of Jesus in, in uh, chapter one. And it was in Acts chapter two. We saw the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit there on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost, it happened 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we saw Peter in Acts chapter 2, standing up and boldly preaching, boldly proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at that moment, the church was born. And some 3,000 men placed their faith in Jesus Christ, in the risen Savior, and they were saved. And not long after Pentecost, right, we saw in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they're going up to the temple uh, they're going to pray, and on the way, they come across this lame man. He's begging for alms. And again, we witnessed just this boldness within Peter as the Holy Spirit came upon him. And he says, hey, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter reached down. I mean, just imagine the faith that it would take to reach down and grab this guy by the right hand and lift him up. And we read as he was lifted up, immediately he received strength. And he began walking and leaping and praising God. I wish I could uh, one day get to see that replayed. And because of this healing, there's just this great commotion, that, uh, this great stirring that began. And Peter noticed as people began to gather together, boy, he again takes an opportunity to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that preaching, we read there in Acts 4, verse 4, another 2,000 men believed, placed their faith in Jesus Christ, right? They placed their faith in him for the forgiveness of the sins. And it brought the number of the new church to about 5,000 men not including men and or women and children. And we also saw in Acts 4, because of this event, the healing of this lame man, 
Well, the religious leaders, they laid hands on Peter and John and, in, and, and they commanded them, do not speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And then they severely threatened them. And the response to their command and threats, Peter again, filled with the Holy Spirit said, listen guys, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. But for us, we cannot but speak of the things which we've seen and heard. I mean, talk about boldness. I mean, it took great boldness to speak uh, to these religious leaders that way, to speak about the very thing that the religious leaders uh, threatened them and told them not to do. They just tell them, hey, we can't help but do this, right? And we saw that afterwards, after that event, they went back to where their companions were. They went back to their companions, their, the fellow Christians, fellow believers, and they prayed. And they asked the Lord to give them even more boldness to speak the word of God. They asked God that he would stretch out his hand and heal still more and more people who were in need of healing and that signs and wonders would be done through the name of Jesus Christ. And they prayed for more of the very thing that got them in trouble in the first place. I mean, I love these guys because they're slow learners. You know what? I love it. They're a great example to us. They're not about to back down. And that place was shaken, we read. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with great boldness. It was an answer to their prayers. And all of this, I mean, those four chapters, all of this has occurred within the span of about two months after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Very short period of time. Again, about 5,000 men made up this new church. And again, who knows how many women and children were in the church at that time. And we pick it up in verse 32, Acts 4, 32. says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. How wonderful is that? Right? All of them seeking to praise God, to know him more. We read in Acts 2 that they, the new church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. It just means that, you know, they continued steadfastly uh, in, in the teaching of the apostles. The apostles just got up and they taught. You know, they passed along the things that they learned from Jesus. They expounded and explained the Old Testament scripture as the Holy Spirit opened the word up to them. And they also continued in fellowship. They just took every opportunity to hang out uh, with one another. And they broke bread together, it says. In other words, you know what? They ate together. They sought opportunities to go to Starbucks together. They grabbed coffee together. They ate lunch together. And they continued steadfastly in prayers, this early church did. And you know what? That happens to be the vision the Lord has for us, right? This is the heart of God for Calvary Chapel, Truckee. And it's my prayer that we as a church would be able to catch this vision of the Lord, the, what he desires for his church. But in regards to this early church, because many had traveled to Jerusalem from great distances, 
you know, to celebrate the Passover, which, by the way, was one of three feasts that every male aged 20 years old and above was required to attend, if at all possible. You know, they traveled for so great a distance to gather together. And, and now, you know, they don't want to leave. They don't want to go home. They, they don't want to leave the fellowship that they are enjoying with one another. They're drinking in the teaching. And they just, you know, they're not able to get enough of it. They were hungry for the word. And they just wanted more and more and more. They had an insatiable appetite for the things of God at this point. Do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember when you first got saved? What it was like? You know, for me, I, I remember being in church as much as I possibly could. I mean, if there was a church service, a Bible study, man, I wanted to be there. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get enough of the word. I wanted more. And it was every Bible study was like God was speaking directly into my life, speaking directly to me. My heart just bursting with this desire to, uh, you know, for more of Jesus in my life. Well, that was the atmosphere of the early church here in Acts. Just like that. People, they didn't want to go home. They wanted to stay and grow together in love. You know, they, they, but that gave rise in the church to needs within the body. We read verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. The people of the early church here lovingly began to share what they had with their brothers and sisters. And, and they all, and they had all things in common, it says, right? And we see in verse 33 that the apostles gave witness with, with great power. Uh, they gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was great grace upon the church. They enjoyed God's wonderful grace. They were experiencing and enjoying this overflow of an abundant grace lavished upon them. And God's favor was upon the church. And verse 34, it says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands, of houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one according uh, as anyone had need. So there was no lack among the early church. Those that had property, they had houses, you know, they sold them. They brought those proceeds to the apostles in order that it, they might be distributed to anyone who had need within the church. You know, those that had um, property did this. And, and, you know, people see this in the Bible and they say, yeah, it's communism. You know, some people see that and say, yeah, it's communism. But it's not communism. What it is, is commonism, right? They had all things in common, it says, verse 32. None of it was done under any compulsion of the apostles. And that's an important thing that you need to, to notice. It was all done out of compassion, right? You see, communism says, what's yours is mine. 
You know, communism, we lived in former communist countries. Communism is really great if you're a bad worker because you get what the good worker gets. It's all the same. There's no, there's no incentive, right? Communism says what, what you've worked hard for, it's mine. But you know what? Communism, compassion, love, it says what's mine is yours. How I pray that God would do a similar work in our body. Not that it's lacking, but that it would just be a greater measure of that work. That God's spirit would fill us with just this overwhelming love one for another. You know, that we would hold each other up in prayer. That we would seek the best for each other. Esteeming each other better than ourselves. That we would be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not just looking out for our own interests, but also looking out for the interest and the well-being of others. Again, not that that's lacking in our church. I just pray that God would just do it in a greater way, magnify it, because that's God's heart for his church. That's God's heart for us at Calvary Chapel Truckee. And how I desire that God would pour out his spirit upon us. And that we would catch the vision that the Lord has for his church. That, that we would be given over willingly to that vision. And that God would give us greater boldness to share the love of Christ with those around us who don't know him. Especially in these difficult and trying times we find ourselves in. I mean, you know what? The world is difficult, man. It's trying. I don't know if you heard the news. Seven people lost their life in Jerusalem. A Palestinian outside a synagogue shot it up. You know, uh, shootings in our country. People need to hear about Jesus Christ. And if we don't tell them, who's going to tell them? How I pray, and I pray this for myself. I pray this for us as a church. That our hearts, right, like these disciples that we're reading about here in Acts chapter 4, that our hearts wouldn't be to escape the hard times and difficulties that we're facing, but that, you know, it would, it would cause us to long to see Jesus glorified in a greater way in the difficulties that we face. I mean, isn't that the kind of church you want to be part of? Uh, isn't that the kind of man or woman you want to be in Christ Jesus? That's the kind of Christian I want to be. And in verse 36, it says, And Joses, whose name, uh, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. So we're introduced here to this man named Joses. We actually don't know a lot about this man, but in, the, in these two verses, we're able to get a pretty good picture of who this man is. Uh, his name is Joses or Joseph, Joseph in um, Hebrew. And we know that the apostles give him this name, uh, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. But I don't think that he was always a son of encouragement. I don't think that was always true about him. In verse 36, we learn that he was from Cyprus. And in verse 37, we see that he owns some property there. Cyprus is a very 
fertile land. You know, it's just, just off the coast there of Syria. And in these days, Cyprus was famous for its wine, for its wheat, for its oil, for its figs, and for its honey. And for Barnabas to own land there, it means that he was probably very wealthy and influential, right? But there's a problem. And as we read it, did you see it? Verse 36 says that he was a Levite, right? So, you know, he's a Levite. It's against the law uh, for him or any Levite, for that matter, to own land in Israel. Well, wait a minute, Gary. You know, it doesn't say that he owned land in Israel. It says he owned it in Cyprus. Yes, that's true. But why is he in Cyprus? You know, he's a Levite. He's part of the tribe that's been given the privilege of serving God as a priest. So why is he in Cyprus? Somehow, this Levite has drifted and left the call of God on his life. You know, so I just wonder if it was the desire of money, the desire of wealth that led him astray like it did to so many of the religious leaders in this day. So many people in our day are led astray by that desire. Or was it that Barnabas, Joses, he, he became disillusioned with religion, right? As he saw the hypocrisy of the religious leaders praying in the streets just so that they would get noticed, blowing horns in order that people would see them when they gave their tithes, did it put him off seeing the religious leaders, you know, walking around all disheveled and sad and, and uh, gaunt, you know, when they fasted? Oh, I'm fasting, trying to appear more spiritual uh, than maybe what they really were. Or was it that he experienced some trial in his life that he didn't understand and wrongfully came to the conclusion that God didn't care about him? And then he fell away. You know, I wonder what it was that made him stray. And the answer is, you know, we don't know. But what we do know is that he's in Jerusalem and he's at the Feast of Pentecost and he hears Peter preach and his heart is stirred. And at this point, his story is a lot like our own story. He feels the Holy Spirit revealing to him his need for a Savior his need for forgiveness of his sins. And he received Jesus as his, as his Savior. And as a result, the Holy Spirit comes into his life and he's transformed. A miracle takes place and he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. He's a different man now. And the love of God has done a work in this man that the law of God could never do. He sells his property. He leaves his old life behind in order that he's able to follow hard after God. You know, I find it interesting that this Barnabas, he's actually mentioned 29 times in the New Testament. And we're going to see later on, after Saul of Tarsus is saved, Barnabas is the only one who's not afraid, um, you know, uh, He's not afraid uh, to reach out to Saul, to seek him out and bring him to the apostles, right? In fact, 
it would seem that he was the only one who rejoiced at the news that Saul of Tarsus could possibly be saved, right? It would seem that Barnabas alone uh, was the only one that rejoiced at hearing that this Saul of Tarsus, this once enemy of the church, is now a brother in Christ. And Barnabas searches him out. And he declared to the apostles that indeed Jesus saved them. I mean, he's been transformed. And Barnabas, what we see in him is that he was fearless in Christ. And again, man, that's the type of man I want to be. Isn't that what you want from Christianity? I want to be fearless. And I think of Pastor Ron. Man, just a fearless man of God. Willing to tell anybody about Jesus. Well, Barnabas, he befriends Saul of Tarsus when no one else would. And as their friendship grew, as their faith grew, you know, Barnabas and Saul, they're sent out as missionaries, right? And we read of Barnabas and Saul. But then as the story unfolds, it kind of switches gears. And as the Holy Spirit begins to raise up Paul the Apostle, it's now Paul and Barnabas. And you know what? Barnabas rejoiced. Barnabas was willing to take a back seat as the group became known as Paul and Barnabas. Personally, I think he was so touched by the Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 4, so in love with Jesus that all he cared about was just seeing Jesus glorified. What a wonderful, selfless example the Holy Spirit puts before us here in Barnabas, that we might see what God can do in a heart that is totally given over to him. And again, I pray that the Lord would do a similar work in each one of us. Now, in Acts chapter 5, verse 1, it begins with the word but. And what we need to understand is that the chapter breaks, the verses, you know, they're not in the original manuscripts. They came around later to help us with easy reference. Turn to Acts chapter 5. Turn right to it. Uh, they're added later to help us with memorization. Chapter 5 is actually just the continuation of the story. And we see in Acts chapter 5, it starts out with the word but. And that word there is a contrasting word, right? It sets one thing in contrast to another. And what the Holy Spirit is seeking to contrast for us here is Ananias and his wife Sapphira. He's setting them in contrast to this man named Barnabas. It says in Acts chapter 5, verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, uh, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. Now, the name Ananias, uh, it means God has graciously given. It's a beautiful name. And the name Sapphira, it means beautiful. And in verse 2, it says, He kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. We're told here that they sold a piece of property, a possession. They sold something that, that they had, and they kept back a portion of the proceeds. And we're told that Sapphira was aware of it. Right? She was privy to it, as the King James says. <laughs> Cracks me up, because I thought privy was an outhouse. 
but she was privy to it. Well, in other words, you know, they discussed it. You know, they came up with this plan and they agreed upon it, right? And then they brought a certain part of the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the problem wasn't that they kept back a portion, as we're going to see. The problem in context is that they wanted to appear like those in Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35, those that sold their lands and houses and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid it down at the apostles' feet. They wanted to appear like Barnabas in, in Acts 4, 37, who did the exact same thing with the land that he owned. They wanted to be seen by others one way, loving and giving, when they knew that they were something completely different. They wanted to appear more religious than they really were. And that's hypocrisy. Pretending to be something that you're not. It says in verse 3, Now Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself while it remained? Was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? God never asked them to sell their property, right? They could have sold it and kept half of the money and given half of the money if that's what they wanted to do, right? Having money or owning property was not the issue with the Lord here, right? If you don't want to give to the, to the Lord, don't give. You know, God is not in need of our money. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 through 9 says, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he who has dispersed abroad, he has uh, given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. The giving of our tithes, the giving of offerings, right? Gifts over and above the tithe. It's actually a privilege. To give to God is a privilege and it comes with a promised blessing. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring all the tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now on this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. It's the only place in all the Bible where God challenges us to put him to the test. Proverbs 3, 5 through 10 says, and these are some of my favorite verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise, Gary. No, it doesn't say that. In my Bible, it says it. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Right? Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Giving to God, giving to the work of God, it's 
It's actually a privilege. And it comes with a built-in promise, a promise of blessing and provision. Again, if you don't want to give, don't give, right? It's an issue that you have to wrestle with, uh, wrestle over with God, wrestle with God over. It's something that you need to hear God's heart in regards to, right? You're under no compulsion for me to give. Tina and I, we give tithes and offering to this church as well as to uh, other missionary works simply because we want to be part in any way that we can, possibly can. We want to be part of the building of the kingdom of God, right? And again, in the text that we're looking at, the problem wasn't that they didn't give. The problem was that they wanted to be seen by others as more spiritual than what they really were. They wanted to appear to the others that they too were giving sacrificially when they weren't. And the problem was their hypocrisy. Verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part uh, of the price of the land for yourself? We see here the problem was a heart issue. Peter says, Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, sin has many tools, but a lie is a handle which fits them all. No matter what the sin is, the root of that sin is a heart issue and it will ultimately manifest itself in a lie someplace along the line. Peter continues verse four and says, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. In verse 3, Peter said, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? In verse 4, Peter says, You've not lied to men, but to God. If you look down to verse 9, you see that Peter calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of the Lord. He's referring to Jesus there, right? When you connect the dots, what you learn, you realize is that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit, He is the Spirit of the Lord. When you lie to one, you lie to all, right? This, these verses here, this is an important proof text for the Trinity of God, the triunity of the Godhead. And in verse five says, then Ananias hearing these words fell down dead and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Well, I guess so, huh? <laughs> I mean, do you think, you think you could hear a pin drop? Man, there was a sudden hush that fell upon all of them. And verse 6 says, And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Sapphira, she didn't know what had happened. I actually like that. Right? I think it says something about this early church. Right? Three hours had passed, and she hasn't heard any stories. Right? There's no gossip going on. Right? There's no rumors circulating. You know, uh, news travels fast in a church, especially when it's regarding somebody's shortcomings or their failures or some sin. And again, I pray that we would never be like that. I pray that Calvary Chapel Truckee would reflect this church that we're reading about, a loving church, a praying church, a church is growing in their love one for another. And in verse 8, Peter 
answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to, to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Peter uh, gives her a chance. God gives her a chance to come clean here, right? To, to make confession into regards to what actually happened. She could have said, no, actually we sold it for X amount and, and we decided to keep some for ourselves. She could have confessed, but she and Ananias agreed upon this plan. The Greek word translated in verse 9, agree, it's sim, uh, symphoneo. It's where we get the word symphony. Sapphira is acting in concert with Ananias in order to deceive. Ladies, Colossians 3.18, right, says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. But it doesn't mean you're to submit to your own husbands if they ask you to engage in a sin. And guys, Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus would never ask the church to do something wrong, something that would force her to make a choice between him and God, you know, because that's not loving. Jesus gave himself for the church. And that's what we're to do for our wives, guys. We're to place their needs and um, their well-being above all of our own desires. Verse 9, again, Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed to test the Spirit of the Lord, to test God? So how did they test God, right? Anytime we place God on the spot, forcing him to choose between us and his word, between us and his nature or his character, we're putting him to the test. And Peter continues and says in verse 9, look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her with her husband. Every time you see Jesus in the gospels pronouncing a woe, it's always directed at the hypocrite. It's always directed at the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus commanded his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He was probably referring to what Jesus uh, said in regards to the kingdom when he said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of mill till it was all leaven. The enemy knows that he cannot prevail against the church. So his plan back then and still today is to bring ruin upon the church from within, to bring down the church from within. Ananias and Sapphira, they were introducing hypocrisy into this newly birthed church just days after it was birthed. And God judged them for it. And you might think that God judged them a little too harshly, right? Especially in light of the fact that there are many hypocrites in the church today. And that part is true. 
But God judging too harshly, that part isn't true. It's true that maybe you came to church today and while getting ready, you know, you argued with your wife and uh, you spoke to her in a way that you shouldn't have. Or maybe, you know, you're driving to church and you didn't speak to her at all the entire drive. And then you get to church and someone says to you, hey, good to see you. How you doing? And you say, hey, man, I'm doing great. I'm blessed. So blessed. It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. And we're all guilty of it. Thank God for his grace and his patience. Boy, if it wasn't for God's grace, we'd be uh, singing, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Jesus. I surrender, I surrender all. And then pow, pow, we lose two or three over here. They're gone, (laughs) right? Or we'll be singing, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Whom you love, I love. And pow, 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 three more drop over here, you know? Uh, yeah, thank God that we live in an age of grace. If it wasn't for God's grace, none of us would be here. But according to the law of precedence, God lays down a precedence at the beginning of a work so that we'll know his heart and he won't have to repeat it to us over and over again. Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus chapter 10, right? Instead of uh, you know, they, they bring this strange fire before the Lord. They bring this fire from a big lighter or something like that. Instead of bringing the fire that fell from heaven, the fire from God, and God judged them for that. And the lesson was that God must be reverenced. You know, David bringing the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem, he moved it like the Philistines. He did it just like the world does it. Just throw it up on a cart and let's just move it out, Right? He should have known better. And then the ox stumbles and Uzzah puts out his hand to steady the ark, right? And God brings swift judgment. Uzzah dies on the spot, right? And it's because they didn't handle the things of God in the prescribed manner. That's the lesson, right? And here at the very beginning of the church, at the very birth of the church, God brings swift judgment so that we might see and so that we might understand what God thinks in regards to hypocrisy in his church. Even though we live in a time of grace, we're not to be deceived. God is not mocked, right? What we sow is what we're going to reap. And we need to understand hypocrisy still kills, right? Number one, it kills your witness. How many times have you heard someone say, you know, I'm not going to church. It's all filled with hypocrites. Just a bunch of hypocrites over there in that church. You know, uh, I always laugh at that. I always laugh at that because I know hell is going to be filled with hypocrites too. You know, And, and those people that say that about the church, hey, guess what? They're hypocrites too, right? But as followers of Jesus Christ, It's God's heart that we would be the light of the world, right? That we would live in a way that would make people wonder, like, what's going on with those guys? What's going on with those Christians? I mean, why are they different from the rest of the world? It's God's heart 
that we would live our lives in such a way that people would see the truth about God in our lives and that they would become thirsty for him, longing for him, right? That we would live our lives in such a way that people would see Jesus in us and desire the work of the Spirit in their lives too, bringing about a change in their lives too. Hypocrisy in our lives kills that dead. Secondly, hypocrisy kills, it, it kills your joy. It makes you bitter and selfish. It makes you cynical. It has to so that you can continue to justify your actions. Hypocrisy is sin and it separates us from the Lord. It quenches the Holy Spirit in our life and it makes us fruitless. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc., victim of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy kills your peace, right? Hypocrisy will keep you from just being the person God made you to be, right? You'll have to keep striving to be something that you're not, and you become a mask wearer, which is the literal uh, meaning of the Greek word, hypocrites, right? Someone who seeks to appear as someone they're not. It's a role a person plays, hoping that eventually it's going to sink in. Hopefully it's going to take hold, right? Faking it till you make it, so to speak. But it's just an imitation, right? It's pretending. The Spirit of God works from the inside out to bring about a change from the inside. He doesn't work from the outside working in. And the Bible teaches us that the work of God in our lives is that he's changing us. He's conforming us into the image of the Son. He's working to make us more like Jesus. You know what? God met us. God met you. God met me. And he saved us right where we were. He loves you and he takes great pleasure in you. And at the same time, he wants to work a work, a lasting work in each one of us. A work that begins on the inside and works its way out. It's a lasting, a genuine work that he's wanting to accomplish in each one of us. But hypocrisy is pretending to be something we're not. And it's trying to keep up certain appearances for those around us. And it's exhausting. And it kills your peace. It's false. It's deceitful. It's a lie. And the Lord would have us just be ourselves. He would have us just be ourselves. He loves everything about you, except for your sin, of course. But other than that, he loves everything about you. And his desire is that we would yield to him so that he can cleanse us, remove us from all our sin, so that he can thoroughly cleanse us from our sin, so that he can bring about the desired change in our life, right? That we might enjoy a depth of relationship, a depth of fellowship with him. And that's what he's created us for. Goofy sense of humor, silly quirks and all. He loves it, right? The Christian life is to be a blessed life, full of joy, full of peace, a genuine life, so that when others would see us, Right? They would want the same thing that we would have in, in Christ. Just this deep, 
loving fellowship and communion with God, even in the midst of unthinkable hardships and trials. And in verse uh, 11, it says, So great fear fell upon all the church and upon all uh, who heard these things. God wants to be glorified in our lives. He wants, he wants to be reverenced by others when they see our lives lived out for him. He wants us to be real, genuine. He wants us to be without hypocrisy. He doesn't want us to be pretending or striving to be something we, we're not. And you know, again, God help us to catch this vision that God has for our lives. Just um, to live for him unashamed, boldly proclaiming the love of Jesus Christ, right? Loving uh, one another with sincerity, right? Bringing Jesus, bringing God just tremendous glory with every breath that we breathe and every beat of our heart. That's God's desire for each one of us. That's his desire for us as a church. Let's pray. Father, again, so thankful for your word. So thankful for what your word reveals to us, Lord. And God, help us not to be uh, like that natural man, you know, that looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets what he's like, Lord. Help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. Help us to take it in, to drink it in. And Lord, let it take root deep in our heart that it would produce fruit. Lord, and that there would be a yieldedness in our hearts that would allow you to express your life through ours. Lord, we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.